Welcome to In the Oil Patch, presented by Shale Magazine and sponsored by Steer. Broadcasting today from Agreco Studios. Agreco, powering the Permian. In the Oil Patch is where, together, we explore topics that affect us all in oil, gas, business, and in your community. Every week, your host, Kim Bellotto, will visit with the movers and shakers in this fast-paced industry. You'll hear from industry experts, elected officials, and many more right here on In the Oil Patch. Welcome to In the Oil Patch Radio Show. I'm your host, Kim Bellotto. We've got another great show lined up for you this week. We will be joined by Commissioner Ryan Sinton of the Texas Railroad Commission. But first, I want to talk to you about our latest issue of Shale Magazine, in which our cover is Sarah Ortwine, who is the president of XTO Energy. Of course, a company, an energy company that's based in beautiful Houston, Texas. This is definitely an issue that you don't want to miss. And we were actually pretty happy and proud to have her on the cover um, as there's just not a lot of women executives uh, in the energy sector. And so we were able to tell her story, talk about the great company XTO, as well as um, just kind of introducing uh, our listenership and our fan base to XTO, the energy company. So be sure to go to shale, that's S-H-A-L-E-M-A-G.com. Again, that's shellmag.com to read the story in its entirety. Before we bring on David Blackman, the editor of Shell Magazine, to talk oil, gas, and, of course, some politics, I want to tell you about the latest thing that's happening in 2019 within the Oil Patch Radio Show. We are so excited to have a partner coming on board, the Texas Alliance of Energy Producers, John Tatera, and his team will be coming into studio and fielding any questions that come in live via Facebook and or via email to our office wanting to discuss anything you want to know about oil and gas. And I mean anything. So you could send in questions on the environment, global warming, seismicity, air quality, water, you name it. But what we definitely want is your involvement. So feel free to send us your questions beforehand to radio at shellmag.com. Again, that's radio at S-H-A-L-E-M-A-G.com or go to our Facebook page and send us a message. As we're doing it live, we'll be making these announcements and you can send us your question right then and there or call in as well. This will begin in January 2019, but get your questions in early. I highly encourage you to get informed, get involved and get engaged. But now it's time for me to welcome the editor of Shell Magazine, David Blackman. David, welcome to the show this week. Hey, it's another beautiful day in Texas. Couldn't agree with you more. It's a little on the cool side, but uh, we'll take this nice weather. Um, Something very exciting happened this week for Texas. We actually moved into Texas, became an exporter of LNG for the first time. Chenier Energy uh, loaded its first full tanker of LNG to its new facility, which is outside Corpus Christi, and sent it out to sea. So I want to talk a little bit about that because how exciting. You know, Chenier has been uh, in the news a lot. They've been doing a lot when it comes down to LNG. So I want to talk about that a little bit. Yeah. Um, Yeah. Of course, they uh, were the first exporter of LNG out of their uh, Sabine Pass facility in uh, in the western uh, portion of uh, Louisiana and have been pretty much the only game on the Gulf Coast here since then. 
for LNG exports. Cove Point up on, on the eastern seaboard has also been active for about a year now. And uh, this is the first uh, shipment of liquefied natural gas out of a Texas port. And so it was a big deal this week, uh, a really big deal. Of course, Chenier has built that facility. This is the first unit at the facility that, that is now open. They're going to open a second train at the same location later this year uh, by the end of 20, I'm sorry, by the end of 2019, not later this year. And um, so, you know, there it's a, it's a great thing for Texas and it's a really good thing for the oil and gas industry because, you know, it uh, just creates more markets for the natural gas that uh, is being produced in such amazing quantities here in the state of Texas. It's, it's just almost incomprehensible how much production and how much reserves we have in the, in the state of Texas, in the Permian Basin, the Eagle Ford, the Barnett, uh, Cotton Valley Wells in East Texas, and on and on. Excellent. Well, you know, also the Houston Chronicle uh, this week also was discussing the LNG export capacity, and they stated that it was going to double in 2019. So where are these terminals going to be located at? Really, all the expansion that's going to happen this year really is on the Texas and Louisiana Gulf Coast. You have, uh, as I mentioned, Chenier is, is going to add one more train to their Corpus Christi facility in 2019. They're going to add either one or two more to their Sabine, Sabine Pass facility. I mean, they keep expanding that facility as well. And so more and more uh, natural gas is going to go out of that port as well. Uh, you have uh, Freeport LNG near Houston. Uh, we'll be opening the first train in their export facility in 2019 and maybe a second train as well. Uh, so that's, you know, going to get built out pretty quickly. And then uh, Louisiana LNG in south central Louisiana along the coast there is uh, also opening their facility in 2019. So we're going to be able to right now, our capacity at the end of 2018 is about 3.7 billion cubic feet of LNG uh, export capability right now. By the end of 2019, it's going to be, it's projected to be 8.9 BCF by the end of 2019. And then in 2020, you're going to have uh, quite a bit more expansion in that year as well. So, I mean, this is a mushrooming industry uh, in the United States and it's, you know, good news for our state and for Louisiana because it's all located uh, down here on the Gulf Coast. Excellent. And of course, we are, who doesn't like LNG, right? Of course. Um, Let's switch gears a little bit and talk about New Mexico for a minute. Um, a report from the state's government says that they will finish the year with a revenue surplus of $1.4 billion and traces 80% of that surplus directly to higher taxes, fees, and royalties by the oil and gas industry. So tell me what this means for the citizens of New Mexico. It, it's so amazing uh, what's happened in New Mexico, and it's all not all, but uh, probably 90% of it due to the Permian Basin extension that's there in uh, Lee and Eddy County down there in southeast New Mexico. Um, if you remember, in August, the federal government conducted a lease sale in which they auctioned off acreage on federal lands there in southeast New Mexico. And the lease bonus payments in that lease sale were a billion dollars, a billion dollar lease sale in New Mexico. What people, most people don't realize is that the state governments onshore on these lease sales, half of that money goes to the state. 
Okay, so that's that was half a billion dollars windfall to the state of New Mexico right there. And then, of course, you've had rapidly growing production there in southeast New Mexico and also in northwestern New Mexico in the San Juan Basin, the natural gas production up there is, is growing as well. And all that means more revenues to the states. Uh, there's a lot of state lands that, you know, that collect royalties uh, to the state and uh, all the permitting fees and all the various other fees that the state collects uh, on the industry there. And just, when you talk about a $1.4 billion revenue surplus, the whole state budget in New Mexico this year is about $7 billion. So 1.4 billion, that's a 20% of the whole budget. That's a surplus now. So think, you know, I mean, of course, and, and mainly what state governments spend money on is education of the, of the state's school children and, and healthcare, infrastructure and healthcare. Those are the three big buckets. So this is, uh, you know, it's just a gigantic, uh, uh, addition to the state's uh, potential budget in the coming years. They right now they had a 1.1 billion uh, rainy day fund kind of uh, situation there. They don't actually call it that, but uh, before this year, and so now their rainy day fund essentially is 2.5 billion dollars, which is 40 percent of the whole state budget. So they'll be able to, you know, they'll be able to expand health care benefits and, and spend more money on education, hopefully not waste it, but spend it in the right way and and uh, repair infrastructure and expand highways there in the state. So it's just like we've seen in Texas all these years during the boom. And um, it's a big deal. And, and it's just really great to see it happening over there. Um, you know, you, you have something similar happening in Louisiana. Now, with, with all the build-out of new chemical plants in Louisiana and other plastics and, and other manufacturing facilities there in the southern part of Louisiana that, that all, you know, use natural gas and petroleum products as feedstocks uh, to, in their manufacturing processes. And so that's starting to improve the state budget situation there in Louisiana as well. So it's just, it's just everywhere the oil and gas industry creates a boom, the state government's benefit. And it's it's great to see that happening in New Mexico as well. Well, and I'd also, you know, say that it's it's the states that, are, of course, you know, benefit, but the citizens, if they really understood how much revenue and what that means for them, for better teachers, higher paid, uh, higher salaries for these teachers, more classrooms, more building of schools, uh, infrastructure projects that yeah. probably never got off the ground. There's, you know, transportation. I mean, we see that here in Texas and there's, it's, you know, there's money that's allocated. It's not all of it, but there's different pockets of money that are being funded to, to keep these programs going and to benefit the citizens. Um, and, and yet they may not have anything directly to do with oil and gas except, you know, putting gas in their car, but they certainly benefit from it as well. So, Excellent news for New Mexico. We're happy for them. But, David, that is all the time we have for this week. Look forward to having you next week when I'm sure we'll be catching up with more very interesting things that are happening in the oil and gas as well as probably the geopolitical scene as well. I'm sure we will. There's never any shortage of things to talk about. (laughs) Definitely not. Thank you. And with that, we do have to take a quick break. But when we return... I will be joined by Commissioner Ryan Sinton of the Texas Railroad Commission. You're listening to In the Old Patch Radio Show. We'll be right back.
In the Oil Patch Radio Show is proud to bring you this week's Energy Minute produced by shalemag.com. Here's Texas Railroad Commissioner Ryan Sitton with your current industry update. Yesterday, the Energy Information Agency reported that last week U.S. crude inventories dropped. This was the first decrease reported in weeks and confirmed the API's report of a drop a day earlier. However, while the API reported a drop of 10 million barrels, the EIA stated that only 1.2 million barrels were lost. Regardless, this drop should have been good news for oil producers as it shows a potential balance in U.S. markets. However, in other news, the Iranian oil minister commented that there are divisions in the OPEC alliance, which raised concerns that OPEC members may not honor the agreed cuts from the weekend. WTI dropped 69 cents yesterday to close the day at $51.37 per barrel. Listen to In the Oil Patch Radio and keep up with the oil and gas industry online at shalemag.com. And we're back. You're listening to In the Old Patch Radio Show. And our guest today is Ryan Sinton of the Texas Railroad Commission. Ryan, welcome to the show. Thank you, Kim. It's good to be back, as it always is when I get a chance to chat with you. I couldn't agree with you more. I'm, I'm very excited every time we get one of the three commissioners to join us on the show. Because, you know, uh, Commissioner Sinton, truly, this is one of the most important regulatory bodies that we have in Texas. Uh, We all are very familiar that Texas is an oil state and a lot of resources from oil and gas come into our state. And you, there's three commissioners that actually, you know, manage the entire uh, or regulate the entire industry. And so it's extremely important. So I'm glad you are joining us today and we're able to catch up with you. Well, good. I think you're exactly right. It's an important agency in a very important industry to the state. And while things are growing so quickly, it's more important than ever that we are communicating with folks all around Texas about what we're doing. So, Commissioner Sinton, you are a very uh, unusual uh, commissioner because you have a background in oil and gas. (laughs) It's a really great great uh, thing for Texas because we actually have an experienced commissioner that understands oil and gas. Not saying that you have to have that, but it's very interesting when you do. You have a different view and a different opinion. So tell tell our listeners a little bit about your background. What made you want to run and how did you uh, decide that you were going to run for the Texas Railroad Commission? Well, sure. Well, I uh, graduated from Texas A&M, and I got my mechanical engineering degree from there and immediately went into the energy industry. And this was 20 years ago, graduated in 1998. Uh, My first job was with Oxy. Uh, My second job was with Marathon. And in both instances, I was actually for both companies, did some work both upstream and downstream looking predominantly at facilities stuff, you know, equipment, uh, piping systems, heat exchangers, pumps, uh, tanks, all to design and ensure that that equipment was reliable. Well, then uh, transitioned in uh, my third job out of college was working for a small consulting company. And then my fourth gig was I started my own company and ran it from 2006 until 2014, so about eight years. And during that time, I was really blessed. The company just took off and grew in leaps and bounds. Well, in um, Along the way, I I developed a real passion for energy policy because I I realized not just for for my company, but everywhere we were doing business, how 
profound the impact was when the energy industry was running well, when we people had access to you know, affordable, reliable energy. It affected all areas of our economy. Well, in addition, uh, I began as our company was growing to have a, a passion for making a, a bigger impact on the world than simply running my own business. And I, I had firsthand experience working with regulation. Uh, when I worked with companies that I was doing work for, we were dealing with EPA and OSHA and DOT regulation. And I saw exactly what good regulation and bad regulation looked like. So put all that together. And in 2013, uh, 2014, I decided, man, I'm going to, I'm going to run for the, the railroad commission because I think I could make a, a big role specifically having this technical background in the industry. And so now I am the first engineer in 50 years to serve as a Texas Railroad Commissioner. When, when I look at all three of the commissioners, uh, Christy Craddock, Wayne Christian, and yourself, each of you guys have such uh, different backgrounds, but yet bring so much. And uh, with the three of you guys, it really does make a good regulatory body to oversee on both sides, uh, regulation as well as community outreach. And we're going to get into that later on in the show. Uh, but um, I wanted to just briefly touch on, you've made a commitment uh, to personally educating the community on oil and gas as well. Um, it shows in how often you're out on speaking engagements, you, you're out a lot, you're a very, very active uh, commissioner, but you also have committed yourself. Um, I don't think really anyone can understand unless you're an elected official, um, and especially for the, for, the, for the Railroad Commission, how busy you guys are, the three of you all. But you have taken on another role with us in helping really the community understand more about oil and gas. And that's these energy minutes that we produce. Uh, and of course, it's with your knowledge and your information that you give us daily updates to help the community understand more about oil and gas. And so I want to, you know, briefly talk about the energy minutes, your commitment, um, and, you know, some of the uh, importance of why, you know, you commit your time to producing these minutes every single day for the community. Sure. Well, the first ingredient is this. When do most people worry about energy? The answer is when, when it hits them in their pocketbook. If you're paying the electricity bills or you're putting gasoline in the tank, that's when you feel it. I mean, if you don't work in the oil and gas business, you just it just is kind of something that happens out there in the in the ether. Well, the reason I thought these energy minutes were a good idea is when you watch gasoline prices go up and down at the pump, which they have been pretty pretty quickly, pretty, pretty violently, you're wondering what the heck is happening. And the fact is it's usually a couple of simple things that have a major impact, and we get a chance to bring those to people every day because especially in Texas – where the oil and gas industry is such a large portion of our economy. I think it's a fantastic tool to have people hearing every morning, oh, th this is what happened yesterday. Oil prices went up, natural gas prices went down, there was this international event, there was this refining outage, there was this new discovery. All the little things that cause markets to move up and down every day, because we're bringing that right to people's you know, cars, right to their cell phones, in a way that they get a little touch every day in a minute, one minute to understand what's happening. And I, I think that's helping people feel just a little bit more connected to this industry that's so important in our state. So that's why I do it. I couldn't agree with you more. And I do want to say thank you because 
it does take a commitment from a very, very busy person who's traveling as an elected official all the time to make a commitment to sit down for five, 10 minutes, do your research and then produce it and send it to our studio. So, you know, on behalf of the community, on behalf of of our show, I want to say thank you because it is a commitment that you do. And I want to make sure that we thank you and that we recognize uh, the commitment that you are making um, as an elected official uh, for the for the Texas oil and gas uh, community. Uh, but with that, Ryan, uh, we're going to take a quick break. When we return, I want to get on to more of the global topics. Um, we've had some pretty um, important things happen with OPEC Plus, and so I want to get into that, and I also want to get into some Texas stuff here. But we do have to take a quick break. You are listening to and the Oil Patch Radio Show, and we'll be right back. Agreco has been powering the Permian Basin for over 10 years, supporting Permian producers with temporary power to get their product to market. When utility power is not available, Agreco is your reliable alternative. Agreco supports power systems as small as a single 200 kilowatt to as large as a 50 megawatt power plant. So when your utility power is delayed, call on Agreco to engineer a diesel, natural gas, or battery solution to fit your needs. We have immediate availability right here in the Permian Basin. Call 1-800-AGRECO or online agreco.com. And we're back. You're listening to In the Old Patch Radio Show. And our guest today is Ryan Sitton, a Texas Railroad Commissioner. Uh, Ryan, before the break, uh, we were talking a little bit about the commission itself, uh, the agency, what it regulates, and of course, your experience and your background of how you connected into running for this public office and winning. But I want to switch gears. We actually had a meeting, OPEC had a meeting, and uh, there was some pretty uh, significant uh, information that was on the line as far as would they be making cuts uh, on uh, OPEC in Russia or would they not? And of course, it, it involves us too, because this will have a price uh, on the world stage as far as how they are um, uh, what will be the price of oil? So it's, it was a very important meeting. We we've seen upward and downward movement of gas uh, or crude prices going up and, and dropping recently in the past couple of months, and this was hopefully going to stabilize uh, that market. So tell me a little bit about your thoughts on uh, the cuts. How will it impact uh, on a world stage, and or will it? And will it uh, ease prices as far as having them come up a little bit and um, not ease prices, but increase them? Well, when you look out three, four, five years, which is really where we should start, you say, well, the world is adding between a million and two million barrels of demand for oil every year. Now, when there's global recessions, that amount goes down that gets added. And when we're in a time of big economic boom, it's bigger, but it, it goes up every year across the world. It's just a question of how much. And when we look out, you know, five years, you say, well, the world's probably going to want 7 million, 8 million barrels a day, more oil in five years. And where is that oil going to come from? Because by that point, we will probably have outgrown Saudi Arabia and Russia's spare capacity by a healthy chunk. And you look around and say, well, where else will it come from? Well, Canada has the ability to produce a lot more, but it takes a lot of investment and it takes a lot of time. You get down to the only place to really get a lot more oil relatively quickly you know, in a couple of years' time is the United States and specifically the Permian Basin. 
So the reason I say that is, let's look at what's happening in the global market today. This year, we came into the year in a relatively stable market. Things were pretty balanced. You had production and, and consumption in fairly tight alignment. But then in the middle of the year, the federal government announced that they were going to reimpose sanctions on Iran. And that spooked the market, and everyone said, oh, my gosh, a million to two million barrels of production may come out of the market with these sanctions. And immediately, even though the sanctions weren't going to come into effect for about four or five months, prices began to rise. Because where would we find that extra million or two million barrels? As prices came up, the, the president and the, and the federal government pushed OPEC and specifically Saudi Arabia and Russia to increase supply so that the prices wouldn't so the oil prices wouldn't keep coming up because they recognized that there was that, that people in the United States don't like expensive gasoline. So I think somewhat begrudgingly the Saudi Arabia and other OPEC members decided to put more oil on the market recognizing that it might imbalance the market but to try to stabilize prices. So they did in the middle of the year. Well, as we got got into October and November, people began to realize that the Iranian sanctions were either one, not going to have that big an impact, or two, were going to be overridden with waivers. So all of a sudden, we got to October, and the market seemed heavily oversupplied, and prices began to tank. So we went from $76 a barrel down to, 56, down to $50 a barrel in a matter of, I think it was six weeks, six and a half weeks, which was the fastest drop we'd actually ever seen in oil prices. Even back to 2016, when prices got all the way down to $27 a barrel, they didn't drop that far that fast. But it was because of these artificial market moves. And the reason I talk about all that is, let's go into next year, 2019. Here's what I think is going to happen. Now, as you mentioned, this past weekend, OPEC and allies agreed to cut, I think it was 1.2 million barrels a day of production out of the market. I think what that's going to do is bring the market back into balance. And I think that with that balance, you're going to find oil prices nestle into about where they started this year. I think between 60 and $70 a barrel is probably a comfortable place for the market, for the, the global oil producers to supply enough global demand. Very interesting. Well, I do hope that when you release your report, we can get you back on and and uh, talk about the report. And I always enjoy when we get a, a, someone on the show, we are interviewing someone and they were making uh, an, a prediction because it, it's always interesting to go back and see where they write or where they, you know, did they miss it by a little bit? And if so, how much? So interesting. Well, let me, uh, let me brag on myself real quick. The beginning of this year, 2018, I predicted the oil prices this year would range between 58 and $66 a barrel barring some some sort of disruption to the market like the Iran sanctions. I actually mentioned those. If you go back and look at at this year, we're going to have averaged right in the middle of that range. In other words, I feel like our prediction was was pretty accurate, and I feel pretty comfortable with our prediction going into next year. Excellent. With that, Ryan, uh, we're going to take a quick break. You are listening to and the Oil Patch Radio Show, and we'll be right back. The vision of the Women's Energy Network is to be the premier organization that educates, attracts, retains, and develops professional women working across the value chain. Also known as WEN, our mission is to develop programs that provide networking opportunities and foster career and leadership development of women who work in the energy industry. Thousands of women are breaking ground in energy industry careers every year, and 4,000 of them are already members of the Women's Energy Network across our 14 chapters. 
Members receive exclusive access to mentoring, job boards, group discussions, member-only networking events, expert speaking engagements, and more. Join today by visiting womensenergynetwork.org slash Houston or call 1-855-390-0650. The Women's Energy Network, empowering women in energy. And we're back. You're listening to In the Old Patch Radio Show. Our guest today is Commissioner Ryan Sitton of the Texas Railroad Commission. Ryan, uh, we were talking about more global uh, uh, crude oil prices and a global picture. I want to bring us into uh, uh, we're getting ready for the Texas legislators meet every two years. We're getting ready for opening session in 2019. Um, what do you see this year? Um, is it going to be any easier for you guys um, in your report? Are there things that uh, you all are concerned about or things that are uh, very pressing on, on the commission side? Uh, and then, of course, will you share with us or give us a sneak peek? What do you think you guys will be reporting back to the elected officials when we start? Two years ago, we were up for sunset again, which means that the the state agency or the state the yeah the state agency called the Sunset Commission, who works for the legislature, was evaluating how the railroad commission was performing and if there needed to be changes or modifications, which is a great thing to do. I think it's great that our state does that to hold agencies accountable for their performance. The short version was we were reauthorized and in general got a really nice, I think, vote of confidence from our legislature that we are doing the right things, and that was good. This year we won't be under sunset again, and so we can be comfortable that as we go into the session that we won't have that review to go through, but we always have to ask for budget dollars, and we'll be coming back this time asking the legislative members to give us sufficient budget to do our our job. What makes this interesting is that because we the, the, the job of the commission is not static, the demand for us to go out and inspect wells, to inspect pipelines, to issue permits, to evaluate completion reports, it's growing just as quickly as the Texas oil and gas industry is growing. So if you look back at the numbers of things we have to do, say, this year versus what we had to do 10 years ago, well, it's literally doubled or tripled in size. So we're going back and not just asking the legislature to continue to fund us, but to recognize the value that there is in good regulation. And that if we're going to do that for an industry that's growing by 20 or 30% per year, that we have to get the funding to grow with it. And that's, that is difficult to do and rightfully so. In a state like Texas, we are very conservative. We balance our budget every year, and our representatives and our senators do a fantastic job of being responsible with the fiscal burden of the state. I do want to switch gears a little bit because you guys have been busy. You guys have a new executive director there um, as well. Um, so let's talk about some of the changes that are going on internally within um, the commission. Sure. You mentioned the new executive director. Uh, actually, he's been in that role for almost a year now. We lost our executive director, our prior one, about a year ago, maybe a little longer. And Wei Wang, who's our, who's our executive director now, was our um, he was our, our CFO, I'll say in a minute, and he got stepped up to temporarily fill that role, and then he's done a fantastic job. He, he brings it's a level how of... those things happen. <laughs> you get it is, yeah. And you do such a great job. Hey, it's yours now. That's right. 
And he brings a level of analytics and systemization that the engineer in me really loves. And we've been working together closely to help get things done, and, and he's doing a great job. We also have a new – one other role I'm really excited about to marry with, with Way's role. We have a new oil and gas division director, uh, Danny, and Danny came in from industry. In fact, he had a long, very successful career with Schlumberger. So here's a guy who has been out in the field, has dealt with people up and down the value chain of oil and gas, and now he's bringing all of that breadth of experience to running our oil and gas division. And so really excited that Danny's here as well. Those those two, in terms of oil field, really represent the, the large-scale changes, and, and we're excited that both of them are in their roles. Excellent. You guys also, uh, the commission, they y'all do a lot of outreach to the community, um, educating uh, what y'all's role for Texas is. So how has that outreach been? Uh, I, I know that was one of y'all's priorities. Can we talk a little bit about that? Tell me how you guys are doing on that end. Well, a few years ago, all we were doing was responding to calls and requests. Now our team and even the people who were here back then, everyone has upped their game. We're producing videos. We're producing web content. We're on social media all to try to make more information available to people who want it. As I said earlier, you've got an industry that's growing faster than any other in the state, and it's also our largest industry. And so at that, at people across the state, whether they're in a, 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 an urban community where they're dealing with you know, expansion of natural gas supply lines, or they're in a, a rural community where there's disposal wells going in on their property, or they're in a, a, a Another segment of the pipeline suburb where there's where there's major pipeline construction projects going on. I mean, people are seeing this all over the state, and when that's happening, they look. No one's really excited about this stuff going on in their backyard, but the first thing they want to know is that it's safe. So what we're trying to do is make people aware that one, we we know what we're doing, and frankly, before that, that we exist. One of our biggest challenges, and I've told you, told everybody, is that we are named the Texas Railroad Commission, which is a big misnomer, and most people in the state think that our primary job is regulating railroads. And so we have to combat that by going out and letting them know what we are doing and why we are qualified to regulate all this oil and gas activity. And that's that's been our big push for the last few years, even before I got here, was to get the word out about what we're doing and how we do it so the people of the state feel good about their Texas Railroad Commission. And I couldn't agree with you more because when you when you disseminate a lot of information, people can they may not know uh, on the topic per se, but they can make up their own mind by understanding uh, just with basic information that hey, there is a body that's overseeing this. Uh, I don't hear a whole lot of fires or explosions, so it must be relatively safe. If I want to have it, if I want to get any information on oil and gas, I know where to go to, and they're always available in different platforms, which means, you know, if you're online, which that wasn't always the case a couple of years back for the Texas Railroad Commission, that they were, uh, you know, online and on social media, as well as you guys are now, meaning you're touching the younger um, uh, population and the millennials that, uh, you know, are probably being fed one side by main media that uh, oil and gas is bad. And it's good that they actually have the ability to come where they visit, which is social media or online, and look at videos to try to learn. Um, and why I bring that up is because occasionally in the past, especially like when Eagle Ford uh, came around, there was, it grew so fast, it, it outgrew itself really quickly. Uh, there was issues and problems when something grows that fast. Um, and then there were issues all over the state and in other states as well 
on uh, water issues and, and uh, earthquakes and things like that. So it's real important you guys are putting out information to reassure the community that you guys have a handle on this and you are protecting uh, us, the community. So Ryan, when we come back from break, I wanna get on the topic of uh, the Texas Railroad Commission hiring a seismologist and uh, where are we at with that? But we do have to take a quick break. You are listening to In the Oil Patch Radio Show and we'll be right back. Oil-filled experts is the only place you need to go to locate any part, any time for your automotive or oil-filled equipment needs. Here's the number, so write it down. Oil-filled experts, 210-471-1923. Again, that's 210-471-1923. And we're back. You're listening to In the Old Patch Radio Show. Our guest today is Commissioner Ryan Sitton of the Texas Railroad Commission. Uh, Ryan, we were talking about before the break all of the uh, enhancements and all of the changes that have occurred at the Texas Railroad Commission. Uh, but I want to switch gears a little bit because I understand that you guys have a new uh, seismologist as well, Aaron Velasquez. Can you take me through what's happened in this time period? Have you guys learned anything from the seismologist and, and is there any uh, uh, changes that occurred as a result of what you guys have, have learned from having uh, someone on the on staff that's actually looking at this every day for you guys. Well, let me first of all back up and describe the the supposition that everybody is testing, and it is not that oil and gas, oil and gas in general, or that hydraulic fracturing is causing earthquakes. It was specifically disposal wells, and this theory surfaced for the first time about probably six or seven years ago, and it was driven predominantly in Oklahoma. Oklahoma was seeing such a rapid uptick in its seismic events, literally by a factor of 600, uh, and it was in areas of active seismicity, and it was in areas where they were do- doing a lot of disposal. And they, they tried to address it, but it ramped up so quickly that eventually, in somewhat of a, of a rush response, just shut down a lot of uh, disposal operations were put on what they called a red light program so that if there was dispo- any seismicity, just shut down disposal wells. Well, the Railroad Commission, they, we took a little bit more a little bit more thought out approach because our we weren't seeing that kind of increase, but certainly wanted to do our due diligence. We hired a seismologist, as you said, and began to review uh, permit requests that were coming through for disposal wealth in areas of active or historic seismicity. And over the four years I've been here, we've really learned a lot about what's happening in those areas. And I will tell you point blank, I think there have been a couple of pockets in Texas where uh, where it is likely or, or, or possible that the disposal wealth did contribute to the seismic activity. But what's interesting is those are not the areas that were most covered by the media. For example, in the DFW area, Irving, where I grew up, was seeing a lot of small earthquakes, and we don't believe that those were related to disposal operations. Been, 
They could have been related to droughts because back then we had a lot of droughts. Absolutely. A lot of theories about the water tables dropped as, as we've used a lot of water in this state. So there's a lot of theories as to what could have caused it. Um, but any, anyway, the, the point is that we've since then had two seismologists. We had one that worked here about three years, and we've had our current one, Aaron Velasquez, has been here a little over a year, year and a, around a year and a half. And what we're doing now is we've developed some some logic, some, some programmatic things we do, and we review these proposals. And we've been getting more proposals because the industry is still growing for more disposal. And we're taking a very judicious look at every one of those permits to not only assess, are there potential risks? If so, what do we do about them? And then finally, what data can we gather to continue to learn what might connect uh, water or, or water disposal or injection with potential seismicity? And, and we are doing that, learning a lot. Well, you know, they, they have a saying that uh, bad news travels like the speed of light. And of course... <laughs> Right. Uh, we remember when we did start seeing um, some activity in Oklahoma, it was amazing to see how these national media outlets were all over that. And so was every uh, anti-oil and gas association. And uh, I'm glad to see that the, you know, where Texas, where, of course, this is nothing but oil and gas, jumped on it quickly and in a responsible way wanted to to gather the data and make sure that you guys had a handle on it so that way we weren't having any issues here. And um, I guess the seismologists have been doing a great job of figuring out where these uh, places are in Texas that might not be the best place uh, for these sites to uh, have these disposal wells. Yeah, I'd say that's true. The, the thing I would, would say is, and this unfortunately is, you know, when you, you can imagine if you somebody doesn't know anything about the oil and gas industry, but you're feeling your house shake. And someone theorizes it might be related to something in oil and gas. Man, you you get you get panicked. You panic. And our yeah. our job is to is to work through that, which is why I, I'd say very proudly as an engineer, I'm not here because of some political agenda or some some desire to make oil and gas gas look good or not look good. It's to it's to address concerns. And if a citizen actor says, well, look, at the end of the day, I, I, I believe that geek engineer is on the job, then I may, once again, I may not love what's happening, but I do feel like someone's looking out for my interests. And that's, as a public servant, what I go to do every day. Interesting. Let's switch gears just a little bit. We um, recently, last week, we all watched a funeral of our one of our past presidents, President uh, Bush, laid to rest. And um, it, it, it gathered, of course, national media just because he was a wonderful president and had an amazing track record. But there was an area that I wanted to cover, um, which is he was also part of the oil and gas industry and actually moved from Connecticut to Texas and brought his family. I want to get your thoughts on uh, his passing and his connection in oil and gas. You know, Bush was uh, Bush 41. George H.W. Bush was seen as such a level-headed guy, such a calming presence in politics. And uh, I think today, especially with the vitriol that is involved in politics today, people look back at that with a real longing. Like, man, did we even appreciate what it was like to have those kind of leaders who were who were somewhat unflappable? Um, you're right. He he had moved to Midland and had some ties. Actually, it was his son, uh, George W. Bush, that had bigger ties to oil and gas. Actually, ran an oil and gas company there in uh, in Midland before he, he entered politics. But um, but yeah, the, the family had a profound impact uh, in Texas. In fact, I get the pleasure of serving alongside George H. W.'s grandson, George P., who was our land commissioner, and he's a good guy. And 
Uh, and then certainly that's a family very devoted to public service. And in general, I think that, that that's a family that really has, has not just ingrained themselves in, in Texas politics, but in the Texas culture. And you, know, you see it from George W.'s ranch, his Crawford ranch, where he goes to unwind and where, where George H.W.'s presidential library is at Texas A&M, where I graduated from. So you, you see their their spirits and, and his his commitment to service and his legacy alive all over the state. And it's um, to be quite blunt, I think what, what we should all what we all do is do a little self-reflection and say, how can I be a servant to my community, whether you're in politics or not, uh, in a way that would mirror some of the folks who've come before us and the sacrifices that they made to make uh, to make our country and our state a better place. And um, boy, there's there's it's hard to find a better example than George H.W. Bush. I couldn't agree with you more, and, and I do hope that we do pause as we go into 2019, hit a reset button. But with that, uh, that is the end of our show. Thank you again for uh, coming on today, and we look forward to catching up with you in the session to see um, what you guys are doing. And, of course, your report that's scheduled to come out as well. I hope you will return back to the show and explain what your report is all about. I'd love to. I look forward to visiting more. Thanks again, Commissioner Sinton, for being a guest on the show today, and congratulations because you are the topic of this week's trivia question. Today's question is, what is the regulatory agency that Commissioner Sinton has been elected to? Be the first person to email the correct answer to this trivia question to radio at shellmag.com and you will have a chance to win a $75 gift certificate to Fogo de Chao, the amazing Brazilian steakhouse. Please be sure to like us on Facebook. That's facebook.com slash in the oil patch and follow us on Twitter at shellmag. That is going to wrap up another great show. We'll see you next week with more exciting news and insightful interviews. Until then, adios. In the oil patch is where together we explore topics that affect us all in oil, gas, business, and in your community. Every week, your host, Kim Bellotto, will visit with the movers and shakers in this fast-paced industry. You'll hear from industry experts, elected officials, and many more right here on In the Oil Patch. Thank you.